if you're new to this whole world of baby led weaning and starting solid foods, you might still be on the fence as to whether this approach is going to work for you. And if that's the case, I want to send you my free feeding guide called Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby? This is a guide that contains a decision tree map that you can work your way through to determine if this is the right approach for you guys and then when it's time to start. Grab your copy of Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby on my website at babyledweaning.co slash resources. I was doing my breakfast dishes this morning, turned the garbage disposal on, and then heard that terrible noise when you know something is in the disposal, but like you can totally tell the damage has already been done. Sure enough, it was an easy peasy tiny spoon, totally shredded, which if I've learned anything about these baby lead weaning spoons from Easy Peasy is that the garbage disposal and the dog both love them. And I was bummed because it's one of my favorite colors that they make, the light gray line, which is called pewter. But my garbage disposal disaster, I guess it came at just the right time because Easy Peasy is having their annual Mother's Day sale from this Friday to Sunday, so May 10th to 12th. You can get 20% off all of the Easy Peasy feeding gear with the affiliate discount code BLWMOM on orders of $50 or more. So this is a great time to stock up at 20% off because my regular Easy Peasy code is usually only for 10% off. So this bump up to 20% off is nice, but it's just for three days. So head to easypeasyfun.com to grab tiny spoons, their tiny cups, and the best suction mats and bowls for baby lead weaning. They have a really cool new bundle maker on their website if you want to group or piece a few items together or If you just don't want to think about it, then just grab one of the Easy Peasy First Foods sets. It has everything you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods with baby led weaning. That code is BLWMOM for 20% off Easy Peasy orders of $50 or more now through Sunday, May 12th at easypeasyfun.com. And happy Mother's Day to you. The most important thing about having a premature baby that I usually try to emphasize to families is how premature your baby is. The adjusted age is how their milestones are going to develop. It's not their chronologic age. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we're talking about premature babies, and in particular, how can premature babies succeed with baby-led weaning? Now, baby-led weaning is not something you're thinking about in the first few days of life when you're in the NICU. There's a lot of other stuff going on. But down the road, when your baby's got that six-month adjusted age mark and showing those other signs of readiness to feed, there are some special nutrition considerations for babies who were born preterm. And so my guest today is a specialist in this area of neonatology. Her name is Dr. Terry Major Kincaid. She's on Instagram at Dr. Terry MD. She is a board certified pediatrician and a neonatologist. Now, Dr. Kincaid works in a very unique area of neonatology in that she runs NICU follow-up clinic. So she still is practicing as a NICU doctor. She actually covers five different states. She said, She does rounds at 50 different hospitals. She's one of those people that's everywhere all the time, such an absolute expert in her field. But the follow-up stuff for the NICU babies is really important because if you ask your typical NICU doctor a question about six-month-olds and infant feeding and baby-led weaning, they'll be like, whoa, hold up. That's like way past when I deal with babies. And they usually don't see babies that far down in the lifespan. But Dr. Kincaid does. So she's uniquely qualified to talk about some of these nutrition needs that our premature babies have and some of the concerns 
that parents have and what we need to look out for when we're making the transition to solid foods for baby led weaning and for babies who were born prematurely. So with no further ado, I want to introduce you guys to Dr. Terry Major Kincaid. She is going to be teaching us about how premature babies can succeed with baby led weaning. All right. Well, hello, Dr. Terry. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I have, I have like a long, long list of questions. I got to narrow it down. But before we jump into the questions, could you tell us a little bit about your background, yourself? What inspired you to become a pediatrician and then specialize in perinatal and neonatal medicine? Sure. I'm uh, Dr. Terry MD. Uh, my full name's Terry Major Kincaid, and I've been a neonatologist for 22 years. I have known since I was six years old that I was going to be a neonatologist, even though I didn't know that that was the name of them. My sister was born premature in 1968. And my mom would always say she was small enough to fit in your hand. And when she came home, she could sleep in a shoebox. And that I was fascinated by that, about the doctors who took care of the babies who were in the plastic boxes. So by the time I got to high school, I realized that those doctors were pediatricians called neonatologists. And I'm like, well, that's what I want to do. I want to take care of the babies in the plastic boxes. So trained in Texas and went to medical school in Los Angeles. And so I've been taking care of the babies in the plastic boxes now for 22 years. And I love, I mean, there's just nothing like holding a human in your hand and then eventually getting, being able to send that baby home with the family or taking a family that's like totally freaked out and then empowering them to take their baby home, you know, when they leave the NICU. Is the plastic boxes thing true? Because my husband was born in 1975 and he was one pound and it was at a military hospital, thankfully, because it probably would not have been a viable <laughs> a birth if he were anywhere else. And my mother-in-law talks about a box and then also a tube sock, I believe. Is this true or are these just analogies? So there are incubators, but like the incubators we have in the NICU now, they're like the Cadillac. They're like the Rolls Royces, you know, plastic boxes. But in the beginning, they were literally just like plastic boxes with tops on them. And they had, you know, a space for the oxygen and a space to put your hands in. In fact, the original NICU started as a traveling carnival show at Coney Island. So there is a book about it, how the original preemies, you could go to Coney Island and see them in this little display. And they'd be in these plastic boxes with the doctors. So, well, you know, that's interesting because the original quadruplets, they used to put them on display, the Canadian yeah. family, and people could parade through and, or the quintuplets and take a look at them. So I'm glad things have changed. Right. So my mom, like I'm always telling her how much time we spend with the families and all this stuff. And she's like, I don't understand what you do. Your sister was there for three months. They told us to come pick her up one day and we did. And I'm just looking at her like, she was 28 weeks in 1968. Like, mom, that's a really big that's deal. Amazing. That is so cool that your sister's story inspired your entire career and you knew what you wanted to do before you even knew what it was a thing. She did, my baby sister. So normally I show her, if whenever I give a talk, I'll show a picture of my sister before I start because I say she inspired my career. Well, we'll put a picture of her in the show notes. I was sharing with you, I had a set of quadruplets. They were 34 weeks, so they were only in the NICU for about a month. But my sister has a 24-weeker, and when her 24-weeker was in the hospital, or she was in the NICU, she got pregnant with another baby on accident, not on purpose, and he was born at 25 weeks. So they were four and a half months each in the NICU back-to-back. -back. Wow. Thankfully, they're fine now. They're all in regular school. I mean, one of them had, he had a stage four brain bleed. It was so touch and go for a while. But we always laugh because she had the NICU baby, and then she got pregnant with the other NICU baby. And ironically, her husband sells birth control. And we were like, um... <laughs> You know how this happens, you know, so it wasn't funny at the time, but I've really come to respect and just appreciate the work that everyone in the NICU does. It truly is a team approach. And it sounds like you're a fabulous team leader. I love it. I love it. And, you know, even though you mentioned your quads were only there for four weeks, I always say 
you know, whether you're there two weeks or, you know, eight months, it's still an unplanned birth experience to have your children and go home without them. Yeah, but then once you have babies in the NICU, because then my twins, they were 38 weeks, we were not in the NICU. And I was like, please, can you take them to the NICU? Because I need to get some sleep. And those people, it's a one-to-one ratio in the NICU. Like, they are really watching your babies, you know? No, I have parents that leave and say, oh my gosh, when we have our next baby, we hope we get to see you again. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, no. Like, if you see me, that means you'll be in the NICU. They're like, no, we hope we get to come back. I'm like, oh my God. Well, I have waited so long to do this episode because it's really hard to find a doctor from the NICU who's interested or willing to talk to my audience because my audience are babies who are six months of age getting ready to start solid foods. And a lot of NICU doctors will be like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't touch them because I only deal with the little teeny tiny ones and then pass them on to everyone else. So I have some specific questions for you, but understanding that, I mean, you're generally not seeing six-month-old babies in the NICU. Is, Is that a safe assumption? I'm not currently, but but my training was actually set up to do follow-up. So my favorite part of the NICU is physician-parent communication and seeing babies once they leave the NICU. Because if you're not thriving when you leave, what is the point of what I'm doing in the NICU? That's my position. So I did see babies up to the first year of life for the first six, seven years of my career. I had a clinic for preemies, uh, babies that were former premature. So I don't do the clinic anymore, but that's the population I love. Like, how are you doing when you go home? All right. So let's talk about that. The NICU baby, because a lot of our parents listening. The baby was premature. They went to the NICU. They got discharged home. So when they get home, can you talk to us a little bit about when the baby's ready to start solid foods? What's different for a premature baby? What do we need to look out for? So I think the the most important thing about having a premature baby that I usually try to emphasize to families is how premature your baby was or how premature your baby is. I mean, I think that's the most important thing for feeding, walking, all the milestones, talking, everything. So a lot of times what happens when you take a premature baby home is you're comparing them to your friend's kids. You know, my friend's kid is five months old and they're doing this and mine, your baby was two months early. Your baby was three months early. So, you know, if you have a baby that's three months early, most term babies will start their solids, you know, or you start introducing around six months. But if you have a baby that's three months early and your baby's six months, then the adjusted age is actually three months. So I wouldn't expect a baby that's three months adjusted to be doing that. So I think the most important thing, first of all, for our preemies is to remember that the adjusted age is how their milestones are going to develop. It's not their chronologic age. Even though their body's out into the world, they're still going to develop based on their adjusted age. And then the second thing is there's a range. You know, there's a range. So we, you know, you start introducing at six months. Some babies can do it at five months. Some babies can't do it till, you know, six and a half, seven. It just depends on the baby. Walking too. Most of the time we'll say walking, kids walk, you know, between 12 and 15. Some babies walk at nine months. Some babies don't walk to, I didn't walk till 16 months actually. And I wasn't preemie. That's a problem that my mom didn't think it was a problem, but I think it's a problem. But anyway, I'm going to move on. So the first thing is, what is their adjusted age? What is their adjusted age? That's when I would expect their milestones to follow. And then remembering there's a range. There's a range. So the three things that I am concerned about most often in preemies are what was their course? So you kind of mentioned their home now, but I want to know what was their course? Were they just a baby that was slightly early? Were they a micropreemie that had lung problems? Are they a micropreemie that had some brain problems? I'm worried about developmental delay. Are there a micropremie that had some airway problems? The breathing tube was in a long time, so the groove of their palate is different. Does the baby have some oral aversion because of the way we introduce feeding in the NICU? So what are their medical problems or their course that might delay their entry into feeding around six months? So my adjusted age, 
What is their medical course? And how does that contribute to their neurologic development? So if you say to me, oh, hey, Dr. Kincaid, my baby was in the NICU. We went home fine. There were no issues. My baby's been on breast milk. I'm ready to go. I'm going to say, what's the adjusted age? If you tell me that the baby's six months, around six months, and the other developmental milestones are being met, I'm going to say, okay, let's go for it. So those milestones include just like a term baby. You know, your first milestone is holding your head. You should be able to hold your head and not have head lag. You know, once you're around six to eight weeks, then you should be able to roll over from your tummy. Then you should be able to roll over from your back. Then you ought to be able to sit up. (laughs) So if your baby is not sitting up, that doesn't necessarily mean your baby is behind. They could be right at six months adjusted, but they may be in that range. And you need to make sure that there are no issues there. And even before all of these things, Katie, are they growing? Okay, so the most important thing for a preemie once they go home, honestly, we just want them to grow. When babies will come to my clinic, the parents may tell me 20 things. All I want to know is, are they growing? <laughs> <laughs> she might be like, he's not eating, take as many bottles as night. Did they grow? <laughs> Did they grow? You know, so if they're growing, if they're growing, all the other things, you know, generally are going to catch up. If they're not thriving, we need to kind of figure out, you know, why they aren't thriving. And so when I think about introducing solids, I'm trying to get parents to understand we're introducing an experience. But the bulk of their nutrition is still, you know, really going to be from their breast milk or their formula for a while. And thank you for saying that, because that's really a message that, to be honest, too many of your contemporaries are not saying. They're stressing parents out about milligrams of iron and grams of fiber and micrograms of vitamin D. And it's like, hey, these babies need the opportunity to learn how to eat. And with that will come their ability to get nutrition. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit BetterHelp.com weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. And even when we see babies in the NICU who have a version, you know, you can tell just when you're talking with our speech therapists or our occupational therapists. Like you'll have babies that are younger who look like they're ready, you know, to start oral feeding. And people will say, well, they're only 34 weeks. They can't have a bottle till they're 36. What? The baby's like eating everything in the crib. You know, they're like bringing their hands. You know, you want to be a little more progressive, but sometimes this field, there are a lot of things we hold on to um, from the past. We haven't been as progressive. This field too, Dr. Terry, (laughs) if it makes you feel any better. So, and I try to bring in my occupational therapists and speech therapists and my dietitians and just be like, look, this is their area of expertise. You know, if they're saying we need to offer this or try this, then we need to kind of follow their lead and not, because even the parents will be like, well, you said the baby wasn't ready, but they climbed into my shirt while I was on kangaroo care and latched on. (laughs) Like, oh my God. Okay, I guess they're ready. And you bring up such a good point. That's what's so nice about the NICU that it really truly is a team experience. When you get home into the real world, 
You don't have the occupational therapist, speech language pathologist, registered dietitian, and Dr. Terry there at your disposal. And that's why I think parents really appreciate a platform like this because we can hear from these experts and, and the whole the follow-up course that you do is so important. And parents need to remember just because your home doesn't mean you're home free, you do continue need to need to be tracking growth. Yes. I wanted to ask you about micronutrients. Because again, I don't want to stress parents out about milligrams and micrograms of micronutrients, but for a premature baby, there certainly are some unique micronutrients. When I say micronutrient, just to make sure we're on the same page here, vitamins and minerals. What differs as far as those needs go for a premature baby versus a full-term baby? Right. So I think the most important thing for the preemie, and I don't know if we stress this enough to families when we start talking about fortifying the breast milk, but so I, there are three or four that come to mind immediately. So first, calcium. Calcium, calcium, calcium. So calcium is it's important for all babies, but it's especially important for preemies. And most preemies are born with low calcium levels because the mother's placenta is serving the function of your parathyroid when you're inside mom. So when you're born, your levels are actually suppressed. So it takes a while for those levels to come up. And that's a problem because preemies need that for their bones. So calcium, phosphorus. So those are the things that we first fortify your breast milk with because we want those bones to grow. We don't want your child to end up with rickets or weak bones or thin bones. And if you have a micropremie, like a 23, 24, 25 weeker, that's a pretty big deal that we start that pretty early because we can see on the x-rays if your bones are not getting enough calcium. And we follow labs usually every two weeks that kind of let us know if we've given enough or not. So calcium and phosphorus are the, the first things um, that I would mention. The next thing I would say is iron. Iron, iron, iron. It's a mineral. Iron, iron. I'll just say it again. Iron, iron, iron. And so <laughs> neonatology, we've learned a lot about well, you know this, you're a dietitian, about you know how we needed to change the way we supplement iron um, for babies. So some NICUs do ferrosol separately to give more, and some people give the polyvisol with the iron. But the reason it's so important is because most preemie, so all babies have anemia. I'll start with term babies. All babies have term babies that show up with anemia somewhere between four to six months, depending on how well they grew. They will outgrow their bone marrow stores. But preemies, have two types of anemia. And usually the first type of anemia is, is what we call iatrogenic. It's a fancy name for caused by the hospital doing a lot of labs. And so <laughs> your baby's sick. We do a lot of labs. We do labs to make sure you're not anemic. And then the baby's like, well, I wasn't anemic until you took out my blood, but now I am. And so we do it every week, you know, to make sure you're not anemic. And then we like space it out because we realize we're making you anemic. And so premature babies have two reasons for anemia. So one, they'll be born with lower iron stores. Breast milk doesn't have a lot of iron, but it's very bioavailable to babies. So we don't necessarily worry about that too much, but we do make sure that moms who are breastfeeding, the babies are getting their supplement. So the preemies have two whammies there. The first is from us having to take blood from them faster than they can make it. The second one is if they're thriving, which we want them to be thriving, that's another reason for anemia. So we have to have the iron. And then the last thing, I don't know if it's in your you're the dietitian, so you can correct me. I don't know if it's in your micronutrient column, you know, but in the last 10 years, we've learned a lot about the importance of fat for brain development for babies. So, I mean, I finished training in 97 and we weren't as concerned about fat for babies. And now everybody's adding the fat and we're adding lipid, and we're just making sure all the babies are getting this because we know even for late preterm babies, they still have that whole extra month where they can get the brain development and it contributes to your myelination. That's the covering for the nerve cells in your brain. So 
those are the four things. And the primary reason for preemies that those things are uh, lower is because the mom's placenta was serving that function. And then the baby comes out, you know, early. So the baby, it takes a while for the baby's stores to kick in. We have to give it through an IV. We give TPN nutrition, but it's not the same as if once the baby's own systems and stores are kicking in. So before I ask you about the fat, I want to back up and ask about the iron. Because one thing I've always wondered is like, we always tell parents, okay, the transfer of iron from mom to baby happens at the tail end of pregnancy. So if your baby wasn't in there cooking at the tail end of pregnancy, they didn't get that big bolus or push of iron from mom. So it goes without saying that when the baby's born, if they weren't, they're going to be iron deficient. Like we know that. But around what week does that transfer occur? Because we always say the tail end of pregnancy and parents are like, exactly what week is it? So is there an answer to that question? That's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer. So I would say somewhere between 36 and 40 weeks. But, you know, it may not even be then, Katie, because I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but for your audience, one of the things we've had to do to address iron deficiency, even in term babies, is as a practice, the field has started doing delayed cord clamping. So perhaps some people in your audience, we did that for their babies. So when babies were first born and delivered, we used to cut the cord immediately. Now, if the baby's stable, we actually delay cutting the cord for 45 seconds to a minute to increase the amount of blood transfusion the baby will get from the placenta. And if you actually do that, it delays the onset of the physiologic anemia that we later see, you know, from growth. And for preemies, it delays the likelihood of them needing transfusions. I was always confused about that. The delayed cord clamping, is that something you can request as a patient and need to know about? Or would that be like a hospital protocol across the board? We delay cord clamping here at this hospital. So... You can always request. So my position as a parent advocate is you can always request whatever you want. The In the field, it's actually becoming standard of care. So, I mean, I cover four states, probably 50 hospitals, and we do delay core clamping everywhere. I actually don't work anywhere where it's not standard of care anymore. Even if the baby's sick, the OB will shout out, do you want me to do delayed core clamping? You're like, yeah, 15 seconds, then give me the baby. You know, but, we, but you're not asking the mom that when she's in the middle of this like traumatic birth. No, like, they're, asking the, they're asking the <laughs> neonatologist because we okay. want the baby or they're asking the pediatrician. So they, the OB will ask you if the heart rate has dropped or something, do you still want me to do delayed core clamping? And most of the time we'll still say, yeah, at least for 15 seconds because it'll really decrease the baby's risk for iron deficiency anemia needing a transfusion. So I want to go back and ask you about fat because you mentioned the importance of fat for brain development. And obviously we worry with preemie babies, you know, it's the brain, the lungs, the eyes, among many other things that could possibly go wrong. And so parents hear that and what they interpret it as, and a lot of times just the pediatricians are kind of contributing to this misinformation is, well, as soon as my baby starts eating, I need to be adding all these high fat foods. I need to be doing avocado. I need to be doing coconut oil. And the baby's like six months of age and doesn't even know how to eat. And the parents are setting themselves up for this like high pressure feeding environment when the baby doesn't have the skill set to eat. I mean, I say, listen, you need to be working with your pediatric dietitian on fortifying the breast milk or working with a fortified formula. So a formula that would be tailored to premature babies. Can you talk a little bit about that using the milk versus the food when we're making this transition to solid foods? Right. And I almost never encourage families, at least in a baby, not not someone who's less than age two, to expect that the avocado oil or the corn oil or whatever they're trying to introduce in there is making that because the baby can't even eat enough at that age to me. But we can put a lot into the formula. So at least in the ICU nursery, 
initially when we we're giving the TPN, as you know, that's the IV nutrition for your audience. A lot of babies have IV nutrition. We just give them triglycerides so they can get that through the IV, supporting their brain development. And then once we're off IV food, most NICUs are working now. We're doing MCT all, which is medium chain triglycerides. So we add that to the formula. And it's very easy using MCT oil, you know, as you know, to increase the calories. And most babies tolerate it okay. Some of them have, you know, diarrhea or looser stools and they may not gain weight as well. So you have to do something differently. Before MCT oil became standard of care, most of the places where I work, we, in the beginning, we would just use like, it was so crazy in my clinic. Um, we would just tell parents to add a teaspoon of corn oil or yeah. you know, olive oil. I'm like, oh, we've come really far now. I mean, if that was like we would write a prescription and just. But parents ask about that because when they go home, they hear about MCT oil and then they they want to go and they want to be supplementing with it. And it's like, this is not something to play around with on your own. You really, really should be working with a pediatric dietitian, even when you're home from the NICU, to make sure that you're getting the right sources that are age appropriate in the right amounts. Because to you and me, a teaspoon doesn't sound like much. But to a premature baby with a still developing, you know, GI tract, et cetera, it's not something to be taken lightly, I guess. Right. And really, if a parent, unless somebody is failing to thrive, once they go home, we do not encourage additional supplementation of any of those oils in their diet. And as you mentioned, if you're failing to thrive, then you should be meeting with your pediatrician and your dietitian because that requires a very tailored approach. And then some babies, you know, have increased risk for choking or they don't tolerate the oil as much or they have changes in their stool. So that has to be followed really closely. So at least up to six months, you know, your breast milk, I encourage breast milk or if they're not on breast milk, then the Fortify formula or however we need to supplement that. And then we start introducing the solids. Then I'm usually not telling people to add oils or anything like that. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You mentioned the fortified formulas for a family who goes home with a premature baby who's on either a breast milk fortifier or fortified formula. How long do they generally need to stay on that? Or who discontinues them from that? I love this question <laughs> because I find that so many of us don't talk to the parents about they're how long they're still like to be. paying for it when they're 18 months old sometimes. I'm like, did well, you go to your doctor? Like, you don't so many people that. don't talk to the parents. And then another thing I notice is if you had a micro preemie who's growing, you know, sometimes like even the pediatrician isn't even still asking like, oh, are you still on the fortified 28, 30 calorie? You know, because the kid's growing. And I always tell my parents, look, you know, when it's time for you to get your four-month shots, you need to be like, look, I'm still on this, you know, so yeah. people can know. So if you have a micropremie, normally for micropremie, we define that as, you know, a baby that's less than two pounds. So 500, 750 grams, usually a 22 to 24, 25 weaker. Usually those babies we would incur until it's, it, it, what dictates it is how well your baby can eat. So most premature babies, if they don't have any other issues, if they do go on bottle feeding, they may be taking around two ounces, 50 to 60. If you have a real guzzler who was older, maybe they take more, but most of them are taking about 50 to 60. And so if you're taking 50 to 60 or two ounces, then you would need to be on this fortified formula at least until you can take closer to three ounces. And most babies can't do that until they're three to four months corrected. You know, But if you have somebody who's taking four ounces, they definitely don't need to still be on a 26 calorie formula, a 28 calorie formula, a 24. So what should determine it generally is how much intake they're taking. So I usually tell the parents, you know, around four months, 
you know, when you're getting your four month shots, if your baby's growing, just kind of mention to your pediatrician, we're still adding this. Do I still need to do this so you can start weaning off? And the way my parents usually remember is I try to explain to them because, well, you know this, well, your babies were big, but if you had a baby that was really small, you're actually not that bothered when they start getting, like, you're happy when they start getting all fat, roly-poly. So you actually, yeah. like, don't want to But stop. to a point, like, we definitely see parents who are still doing fortified formulas well past the time when they should, and they're actually promoting undesirable weight gain. Exactly. And that's what I tell them. I said, it's cute now, but they go round. They don't grow long. And I said, and then when you come to the NICU reunion, you're mad at me because you're like, my baby's all round, Kikade, and never got long. I'm like, <laughs> you're still on 28-calorie formula. It's like eating a protein shake. So I just try to explain to them that says there's mostly carbs, you know, that is increasing the calories and we wouldn't recommend that for anybody. So you definitely need to wean. So normally the pediatrician is the person that's supposed to be weaning at based on the growth. But at least the parents who were in my clinic, I just just try to remind them, you know, bring it up because sometimes, you know, you have so many patients, you don't remember who's on 24 calorie, who's on 26, who's on 28 calorie. Now, if they go home with oxygen or a G-tube or a trach, that's different. A lot of times those babies, their volume isn't actually increasing that much. They still need the calories. They're not growing as much. They're, They're growing, but not growing as well as you would like. But for other babies, we need to be getting off those things and getting onto the business of creating experiences with feeding. I love the description of creating an experience with feeding. I think that's so important. And especially coming from a NICU doctor, because no offense, your people are very, very, very focused on numbers as they should be. And they're in very, very small quantities. And sometimes it's so overwhelming to parents. But I think you give them that permission to step back and be like, listen, your baby still needs the opportunity to learn how to eat just like a full-term baby does. And you want to try to normalize, because sometimes when you had a baby in the NICU, it's kind of hard to shift from a patient to baby because we've like scared you to death, you know, <laughs> so you don't even like know how to like you want to have an experience with your baby, but we've frightened you so much. So you really want to be able to normalize that. And you're right about the numbers. When we have residents rotate through the NICU, by the time they leave, like their eyes are so big because it's the land of minutia. You know, the NICU is the land of numbers. We live and die on numbers. And, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of break away from that. But we, I mean, for me, I want you to be the mommy. You know, I don't want you to be the NICU nurse at home. I want you to be the mommy. And I want you to find those moments to enjoy that even, you know, and feeding can be fun, but you if you're not petrified, but if you've seen your baby choke in the NICU, you know, your baby, we were worried about aspiration early on, or if your baby had reflux, you remember that. You remember your baby having an apnea and stop breathing. You remember your baby dropping the heart rate. You remember us running to the monitor. So it's, sometimes it's hard to get to the point where you can shift. And I totally understand that. Most NICU parents have some component of post-traumatic stress. I mean, we have good data about that. I mean, I have post-traumatic stress. I've been in the NICU 22 years. And now you work so at 50 hospitals. I feel like that might be making your post-traumatic stress worse. I can't, you know, so it's hard to make that shift, but I try to make sure moms don't look like, you're the best. You're the expert. You're going to be the expert on your baby. Even when you go see the pediatrician and give them the information, you're still the expert on what it's like to be with your baby from moment to moment and be able to introduce those new experiences. Dr. Terry, as far as feeding milestones go, how long do parents of premature babies need to use that adjusted age for? Like, is it going to be forever? Like they go to enroll in kindergarten? Like, well, how old are they really chronologically? Like, how long do you do Have you seen that? Um, there's a Facebook meme like that. And like, instead of saying the child is three, the person was like, adjusted age, 36 months and two, you know, like, I'm like, oh, where's your baby in the NICU? So I normally tell people, so in terms of development, I only really get concerned about it in a micropremie, but as a general rule, we stop correcting for development somewhere between 18 and 24 months. 
Because most babies, by the time they're two, in terms of their developmental milestones, they should be caught up. And so not necessarily for feeding specifically, but for the other things like walking, speech delay, you know, words, using sentences, tactile stuff, picking up stuff. We usually stop correcting by the time they're 18 to 24 months and, and get concerned that they, you know, they may need some additional help. So, but for feeding, I still think that six to nine month, six to nine month age, if there's just such a big range for preemies depending on what their experience was. And the baby will let you know. Like if you're eating and your baby's pulling stuff out of your mouth and you come to my clinic and you're like, well, I haven't introduced solids yet because they told me to wait till eight months corrected. Okay, your kid is pulling stuff out of your mouth. So probably. <laughs> you know, your baby is more advanced or, I mean, not necessarily more advanced, but we have a range. And I'm glad you mentioned this about milestones because for term babies, usually when I ask somebody if they've started cereals, a lot of parents interpret cereal as something they put in the milk. And if you start putting milk in the cereal, yeah, milk in the cereal at three to four months because you wanted your baby to sleep through the night, somebody told you to make it their tummy more full. I'm talking about a feeding experience where something is, you know, on their tongue, they're pushing it to the back of their throat, they're swallowing. I'm not talking about cereal in the bottle. So a lot of times when I'm asking, trying to see if a baby's ready to move to the next step, people will say, oh, I started my baby on cereal at two months, but they mean they put it in a bottle. They don't mean that the baby actually picked up something with their hand, you know, and put it in their mouth. And is that, I mean, NICU doctors are not recommending that, right? No, we don't recommend that at all, but (laughs) at all, but you know, sometimes parents do stuff that we don't recommend, you know? Because grandma exactly. did it and mom did it and my friend did it. And you're just like, okay, that's why your kid gained like two pounds last week. They're getting, you know, cereal every night in the bottle. So we discourage that. Now, sometimes for reflux. Yes, there is a little bit of data for reflux, but it's like, let the reflux doctor talk But there's to you no about data that. for it being heavier in your tummy and sleep through the night. It's kind of like an old wise tale, but it is. It's like a, a teaspoon. Lot of families, like, have you ever looked at the nutrition information on a teaspoon of rice cereal, people? Like there's not. Right, it's there. just, it's, exactly. It's just like, just let them eat ice cream all night. <laughs> Well, Dr. Terry, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. Tell us where audience can go to learn more about your work and find your resources. So my uh, website is uh, Dr. Terry MD. It's D-R-T-E-R-R-I-M-D.com. So that's where most of my resources are. If you're looking for me on Instagram, it'll be Dr. spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R Terry MD, because somebody else was already Dr. Terry MD by the time I came to Instagram. (laughs) So that's why doctors spelled out. So I have a book, Early Arrival. That's a a great book for parents in the NICU, teaches you how to talk to the staff, talks to you the way we've been talking today, and the five questions you need to ask all your medical team so you always know what's going on with your baby. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Terry. Yay, anytime, anytime. Keep up the good work. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview episode with Dr. Terry. She is one of my favorite people in all of healthcare. I think she is so inspiring. And I know she gives a lot of hope to families that are struggling, especially if you have struggled with a child who was born prematurely and in the NICU. I'm just so grateful that there are people like Dr. Terry out there taking care of our teeny tiny little babies. So I'm gonna go ahead and link to all of her resources that she mentioned in this episode on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 158. Thanks so much for listening and I'll catch you next time. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, seven days a week. 
You can learn a lot in just a few minutes with stories about impending hurricanes, winter storms, or even what not to miss in the night sky. So listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts.